Coming up next, the booking reads C.S. Lewis's least popular novel. Hey. <laughs> hey. I'm going to tell you what it is. I'm David Roberts, and I'm your humble and obedient host. Over there, we have Brandon Heath, the scholar who's a bother of reading. Hey, Nathan. Hey. Hey. <laughs> Where you want me to go for some <laughs> tunes? Yeah. Hey. 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 How are you? How's it going? Doing all right. Had good. a good day? Yeah, it's been great. <laughs> No, I was just stating that I had a good day. Oh, you had a good day. I know you had, I you had a good day me. just yeah, based was... on your general affect and yeah. uh, your, the dark uh, rain cloud around you and you're holding your, yep. your comfort, your blanket and yeah. you kicked Snoopy on the way over here and yeah. you're Linus Van Pelt is what I'm trying to say. Although yeah. Linus would never kick Snoopy. Linus was a gentleman. Linus with a dark side. <laughs> Linus with a dark yeah, side. With an edge. <laughs> he's Brendan Chastain. He's in a good mood now, though, because he's we're recording the bookening. Yeah. His favorite thing to do in life. That's right. I'd spend time with his family yes. and uh, other things that he enjoys. That's but right. It's up there. It's, it's right up there. Top five, for sure. For sure. For sure. Maybe he, top four. Maybe top four. All right. What just, what just made the, what just got axed? What do we know is beneath the bookening? That's number five, but still pretty good. Who knows? <laughs> there probably never was a number five. <laughs> there was a, a fun fact about Brandon, there's only four things that he enjoys. <laughs> and the booking is number four. <laughs> no wonder you have a dark cloud. <laughs> That's right. Uh, folks, we're just kidding. Brandon's in a good mood. The more I say that, the more likely you'll be to believe it. That's right. Um, because people that are telling the truth repeat the same thing over and over again for emphasis. <clears throat> That's right. There's one thing I've noticed about human nature. People say the same thing over and over again because they're comfortable with it and they believe it's true. And I've been playing with the button on the back of my pants and it's about to fall off. I just realized it's the button for the back pocket. I'm going to slide it through the buttonhole and into the pocket. Success. Yes, indeed, indeed. Need to buy some new pants. In the middle of a weight fluctuation, hard to want to commit to pants. But I really should because I don't have any good pants right now. Uh, and the pants that I do have are clownishly oversized at this point, but that's a, kind of a nice problem to have. I've yeah. lost some weight, if anyone was wondering. Uh, You're looking good. Thank you, Brandon. Yeah. You're looking fine yourself. Thank you. Acceptable is a word that comes to mind. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> I often feel bad about the fact that I have, over the years on the booking, made Brandon sound like a fat, ugly... <laughs> person, which isn't true at all, folks. Just for the record, Brandon's a very handsome young man. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> entirely, once again, acceptable. But uh, uh, I like to make jokes at people's expense. It's one of my things. And uh, over the years, I've made them at Brandon's. And if you didn't know better, you might think Brandon was, you know. I like the fact that people probably think of me as the comic book guy from The <laughs> Simpsons. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, yeah. a good person to be compared to. Yeah. Hey, we haven't even introduced our third person, Brandon. No, we haven't. I think we better do it, huh? Let's do it. All right, let's do it together. All right. Out of three. Three, two, 
one. It's, it's the, the pastor, pastor who's a master of reading. Jake Hub Mensel. 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 How are you, Jake? Jake. <laughs> Hi, guys. <laughs> I'm doing just fine. That's, That's good, good to do here. here. <laughs> Did, Did anything, anything happen <laughs> to you? you? Interesting. Interesting. This, this week? week. Did anything happen to me interesting <laughs> this week? <laughs> um, well, the most interesting things that happened this week are things that I am not at liberty to speak about. Fair enough. Hey. I mean, or. Fair enough, Jacob. <laughs> Secrets upon riddles upon enigmas. The master of mystery himself and the master who's a pastor of reading. Strike that, reverse it, and you'll have a sentence that makes sense. It's Jacob Menzel. Sure. Hey. He's got the LaCroix. Fun fact, this ep- there was an episode that came out, a little bonus episode that dropped weeks and weeks ago. Might be the same LaCroix. We record these things out of sequence sometimes. If you had any doubt, maybe I'll cut this out. I don't know if I, maybe we want to maintain the mystery. I don't know. Maybe he's still drinking the same LaCroix like three or four weeks later. I really hate this drink. (laughs) I've been nursing it for a long, long time. It's like Uh, medicine. It's a medicine. Yes, it's a medicine that helps one get off of the Coca-Cola. Folks, let's do some donor shout outs. And by folks, I mean (laughs) Brandon and Jake. All right. Um, I think I accidentally closed my donor shout out list. No, I didn't. Here it is. They can join us at home. I think you should, listener, wherever you are. You help us shout out the donors. And take a video of it and send it to us so we can retweet it on, uh, put it up on the Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great idea. We certainly will. Maybe we'll put them all into a collage. Send yourself a video. That would be super fun. I expect at least one person to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Preferably a lot more, but I'd like to see at least one. I'm going to be disappointed if there's not at least one. Yeah, totally do that. There's some super fan out there whose pretty face we've never seen. Maybe and we'll play of, it. We'll play it in an episode too. We'll, we'll we'll take the we'll rip the audio out and put it in an episode. That's a fantastic idea. We'll yeah yeah yeah. We'll use it. Send it. Yeah. Help us donor shout out, and we'll actually put it in the donor shout outs. This for this no, it can't be no, for, not this for this episode. episode. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> the one you're listening to now, this we will magically. Yeah. Let me explain to you something about the sequential nature of time. <laughs> okay, go ahead. I don't understand because you see, time is fluid for me. Yeah. He's, he's a in yeah. a James Sorry, Joyce cool. novel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. All right, let's do some donor shout outs. Let's mix it up today, Brandon. Why don't you shout out Doctor X? You mean Professor X? I'm so sorry. I always want to think that he's in the medical profession, but he's not. <laughs> nope. He's just in a, he's a scholar. He's in the professing profession. He's in the professing profession. Professor X. Professor X. Jake, if you would be so kind as to shout out Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. The lovebirds. Brandon, if you could give us a nice warm shout out for Nathan, not me. Nathan, not me. Me, not that, not that Nathan. He's also not you. He's also not me. He's also not Jacob. <laughs> I've become Jacob. Yeah, I don't know why we're calling him Jacob today. But. Let me explain to you something about the nature of human individual identity. Yeah, go ahead. I'm not you. No, you're not me. I'm what? not you. You're not Nathan. You're no. not Nathan. This other Nathan. There can be more than one Nathan, but I'm not the other Nathan. I'm only this Nathan. I thought I was in a padded cell, and you guys were just in my head. <laughs> 
I do like the idea that when people listen, all they hear is just Brandon talking and then long silences. Oh, Nathan. <laughs> yes, that's most amusing, fellows. Um, <laughs> hey, it's our one of my personal heroes, Benjamin Tiberius. Wait, yeah, it's you. Yeah, it's me. Benjamin Tiberius. Benjamin Tiberius. <laughs> Come on down. Come on down. And we've got Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese. <laughs> from Madison, Wisconsin. From, from Madison, Madison Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Hence, well, I mean, context clues. Of course, they're from Madison, Wisconsin. They're cold and they like cheese. Yeah. Uh, and... Was that was that the shout out or am I supposed to try to top that? Maya, I had nothing else. Sorry, like her dad calling her to dinner. She just broke. Maya. Yeah, yeah, I think that's how we gave her the Adrian yell last time. <laughs> Maya, Maya, I did it, Maya. Well, then that was a that was a, you just locked him outside. She locked you outside of the cave with Dino or whatever. That was a Flintstones like yell. Is yeah. what I'm trying to say. Um, what about? I just burped. Beth. <laughs> oh boy, Beth. Yes, uh, my beloved mother, Beth. Nathan's beloved mother, Beth. <laughs> uh, John and Joe, the lovebirds. The other lovebirds. John and Jill, the love, the other lovebirds. Uh, <laughs> you even re- repeated my vocal mess up. Good job. And Max. Oh, and Max. And Max. And Max. Uh, Robert and Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. I feel bad for Jay and Katie. They're the only couple that doesn't get the lovebirds app. Uh, but title. they specifically requested Jay and Katie from Madison, Wisconsin. That's true. That's true. And we give people what they want. We give people what they want. And they are cold and they like cheese. Yeah, obviously. Assuming. That goes without saying. Um, cheese curds are delicious. Cheese curds are delicious. Was there ever mm. any doubt? No. Especially when that nice squeak they have. <laughs> squeak the cheese curds have. Yeah. And then, of course, we have our new donor. Brandon, you excited about our, our new donor? Oh, yeah, Nathan. <laughs> All right. Big donor, welcome. Hey, to, big donor. <laughs> to uh, the mysterious. Beautiful. Who knows? It's prestigious. The prestigious? Yeah. I don't, we don't know anything about her. The inscrutable. Hmm. Jenny hmm. Z. Hey, Jenny Z. <laughs> That's your shout out? Hey, Jenny Z. Hey, welcome aboard, Jenny Z. We appreciate your support. Thank you, Jenny Z. Uh, have I said we're talking about Till We Have Faces? No, I haven't actually said it because I didn't even say it in the you know thing that comes before the music or whatever. But boy, are we ever talking about Till We Have Faces today, folks. Oh, boy, are we. <laughs> What's that sound? <laughs> bang, bang, bang. Bang, bang, on the drum. <laughs> uh, well, a concert here. Yeah, we're getting a little concert. I, I'm not I'm not doing context today. Are you not doing context? No, I don't have any. <laughs> just joking. <laughs> you got a mountain of context, Brandon. Uh, it's not, not all of this. Some of this is just his list. I just wanted you guys <clears throat> to see how many books this guy wrote. If you, if you want to see uh, what, what it's like, what Brandon's context looks like, we've got 
actually a little video that we have we already thrown it up behind the paywall yeah yeah it probably goes up the day that this episode drops actually <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. so if you if you if you've if you want an awesome donor shout out mm-hmm. number one yeah. Oh, yeah go to patreon.com forward slash the booking subscribe at the ten dollar level but if you just want to see a video of like brandon's mountain of well-researched notes and the books that he's brought Got some books here three of them yeah Three books in addition to Till We Have Faces. We're not going to tell you what they are. Nope. But uh, if you uh, support us on Patreon, you'll get to see and hear him talk about uh, what goes into the contextual Texan. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. A little behind the scenes. You'll get to hear some, our, some of our hand wringing about does this, this episode. Mean, does this mean I can't talk about these books now? <laughs> <laughs> nah, you can talk about it. Yeah. I'll, I'll talk around them. Yeah. <laughs> I'll only use their initials. Ah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> and then you have to go and support us yeah. Yeah, I mean, to find can... out what they really are. Yeah. One of them is kind of an expensive book that you can't find anymore. Mm, there you go. And was recommended to me by... True story. This book was recommended to me by one of the best teachers I had, B.H. Fairchild at TCU. He taught poetry. He's came and he, it, it was a rare opportunity. He taught um, a class on poetry to a group of us. He came through TCU. He was the writer in residence and he was a Pulitzer Prize winning, not pro, not National Book Critics Award winning poet. So it was fun. And he recommended Allegory of Love. One of, his favorite, love. one of his favorite. Oh, you said it. Cut that. <laughs> no, he, he recommended AL. Sorry, ah. it's in now. Already too bad. Yep. AOE. That one, you get that one for free, kids. Mm-hmm. That's but a little others. taste of what's behind the yeah. paywall. The others, however, you don't. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, folks, this is Contextual Texan. This is part of the program. Brennan, he's from Texas. He provides much-needed context. And this is a little interesting. This is your first chance to do C.S. Lewis context, Brandon. That's right. But you're going up against someone else that did uh, on the bookening. Um, That's right. Actually, a non-Brandon, a rare non-Brandon context was given. It might be the only non-Brandon context. Yeah, I want to say that. I think it was. probably true. Every once in a while, I'll do yeah. kind of whatever the word is. What's the sports I mean, You guys word? are always like, jumping in to help, yeah. but. If it's, an, if it's something like pulpy or kind of, I might do a little bit, but yeah, the, the, the one true blue non- Brandon Context was by Pastor Stephen Baker yeah. on our previous C.S. Lewis episodes, which you can listen to. It's a fine context in its own yeah, right. Yeah, you should go back and listen to it. Uh, it's, it's got a lot of interesting information about C.S. Lewis. I encourage you to listen to that, and it'll be interesting to see how Brandon lives up to it. So, Oh, away. boy. Take Let's away. do it. Well, Brandon. you know, uh, we've got our own way that we handle context now. So <laughs> That's right. Start off with the bio, then we'll move into some other tidbits of... Fun info. Fun info. Let's start with the bio. He was, we've talked a lot about C.S. Lewis's position in literary history. So he was born right at the end of the 1800s, 1898, which puts him right there with a lot of the writers we read, puts him right there actually with the writer we just read, um, James Joyce. Because James Joyce, as we know, was writing, he published The Dubliners in 1914 when he was in his 20s. C.S. Lewis in 1914 was getting ready to go off to college or... He was just out of his secondary studies at the boys' schools. You can read all about it in Surprised by Joy, getting ready to go to college. So it puts him right there at the turn towards modernism that we've talked quite a bit about in the mm-hmm. bookening, right at the tail end of realism. And we'll get to kind of the way C.S. Lewis relates to all that here in a minute. So yeah, so he was born in 1898, a lot like Joyce as well. He was born in Ireland. He was an Irishman. He was actually born in Belfast, which for those who listened to the last episode, or last, I guess, would have been the last episode? Uh, the episodes on Joyce. On Joyce. Last month's episodes, yeah. Talked a lot about the political landscape of Ireland. Mm-hmm. And Belfast was up in Northern Ireland, 
they can't see my hand motions here, right. but Northern Ireland, like we talked about in the 1920s, would actually break off and remain with England. And so Southern Ireland would become what we now know as Ireland. And so this put him firmly in the Protestant camp that would have been more British than they were Irish, mm-hmm. which is why I think a lot of people think of C.S. Lewis as a British man. We don't really think of C.S. Yeah. Lewis as being Irish. Right. You think but, of Oxford. Yeah, you think of the Oxford Don. That's what he's known as. He's the Oxford and Cambridge Don. But he actually was Irish. There's a whole section in Surprised by Joy. I, I couldn't find my Surprised by Joy, but so I couldn't bring that. But So that is not one of the three books that's here in front of me. <laughs> but he has a whole section on in Surprised by Joy about his Irish childhood, how he grew up. His father was a solicitor, another name. British name for a lawyer. So his family was fairly wealthy. His grandfather was a Welshman who came over to Ireland. So he actually had Welsh and Irish descent. So he wasn't British at all, which is kind of interesting because again, I think most people, don't but he wasn't, he wasn't English. I don't just he, think he was British. As, I don't think I just, I don't just think of him as British. I think of him as quintessentially British. Yeah. Like this, he's a tea English. drinking. And by British, I meant English. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, That's what my look was about. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because they were all British. This is the British Isles. Right. But yeah. he was, we think of him as English. He's like, like Jake said, he's Oxford. Mm-hmm. Right. But he's actually Irish. And he has a big section in Surprised by Joy where he talks about his Irish heritage. And this is really important because one thing that C.S. Lewis and I share in common was that as a teenager, he fell in love with W.B. Yeats. Mm. He fell in love with W.B. Yeats. And I didn't actually fall, this is interesting. I did not fall in love with W.B. Yeats because of C.S. Lewis. So I actually fell in love with W.B. Yeats because of a friend recommended him to me. This is important to know about C.S. Lewis because a lot of the stuff we talked about with Irishness, with Joyce, Mm -hmm. the mysticism, the sort of Celtic weirdness that gets in with the Arthurian legends, the sort of stuff that actually like the Mabignogium with Welsh traditions that would come into the Arthurian romances, all this stuff that we uh, think of when we think of Irish fairy tales, Irish fairiness, was very influential to C.S. Lewis. And so in Surprised by Joy, he talks a lot about how as a young boy, he fell in love with... Irish culture, he fell in love with the fairy stories, and he fell in love as he became a youth with Nordic stories. So the stories of Thor, not mm-hmm. like the Thor that we know of, right? but the Thor that would influence the Superman. Oh. Wagner. Yeah. The, the, the guy that Nietzsche actually looked to as the Superman. Mm-hmm. So his whole Nordic cycle that he, the Ring trilogy, or not, not the Lord of the Rings, but the Ring cycle. Right. That opera. But what he loved about it was what he called the northernness this big, mysterious other thing that was bigger than him, more transcendental to him, and sort of almost a mystical experience. So it's really important to understand with C.S. Lewis, because when we talked about Chesterton, we talked about how his childhood, the poetry of the countryside, and um, his English heritage was very important for him getting a sense of place. Well, for C.S. Lewis, his childhood was very influential with him getting a sense of the whole mythic idea of reality, Hmm. which is important because you tend to see that writers of whatever they experience as a child really shapes their imagination. So with Dickens, he was in a blacking factory, canning factory. He was an orphan. And so obviously he wrote a lot about orphans and the poor in London because that's what he knew. C.S. Lewis, he was Irish. He had this heritage, but he was also a little bit wealthier. And so this all influences the way that he would see the world and be shaped. And so then to just continue... He was in the Church of Ireland uh, as a young boy. Actually, his grandfather was a priest, I believe, in the Church of Ireland. The Church of Ireland was Protestant, was closer to the Anglican tradition than it was Catholic, which again puts him more in that area of the aristocratic Irish that would be more sympathetic to the Queen and English rule, the UK, whatever you, right. whatever you call it. Fairly 
happy childhood. His dad was kind of eccentric and a little bit harsh. His mother died in 1908 at the age of nine. Up until that point, he had been educated at home, fairly rigorous education at home. During this period, he had a dog called Jaxie, which was killed. And apparently this had a big influence on him and he took on the nickname Jack. Huh. And so my, one of my sons is named Jack after the fact that C.S. Lewis was named Jack. Your so just, son is named after the dog? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> I chose poorly. (laughs) (laughs) Indiana Jones references for those of you that uh, don't know your pop culture. Some other things from Surprised by Joy that uh, are just interesting to note about him. As a young kid, he really fell in love with Beatrix Potter. And one of the stories he really, I think I've mentioned this before, but one of the stories he loved from Beatrix Potter was the story of Squirrel Nutkin. And the reason is because it gave you the sense of autumn and the weirdness of the owl and the danger of the owl. And again, that gets to this idea of northernness, this part of nature and reality that's almost, it's beyond us, that gets into this mystical felt world that imagination can access. And that'll be important because that really shapes who he became and I think shapes what Till We Have Faces is. Yeah. So... So yeah, with his brother, Warren, I think was his name, yeah. he crea- he would tell stories, anthropomorphic stories about animals, and they created a whole little world called Boxen. So as a young child, he was reading and he was writing uh, fairy tales and stories. So from an early age, he was a storyteller. That's what he loved to do. Th- so his life then after his mother died, he went to a, a, a series of boarding schools. One of them, the Weinard Boarding School, famously, it was a bad school, harsh and kind of soured him on education for a little while. Then he went to Malvern, where he went to some more prestigious schools. And these schools still today, I actually went to some of their websites, they pride themselves on the fact that C.S. Lewis was among their students. They also, I think that this one here, the one that in his Surprise by Joy, he calls Chart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, didn't I didn't realize it would sound that way. C-H-A-R-T-R-E-S, Chartre, I guess. It's like Lacroix. Mm-hmm. Um, he went there, and but they also, I think, they prided themselves on having five Nobel laureates who also went there. So it's a, I mean, it's a big deal, this school. Mm-hmm. So the point being, he had a really good, solid education. It was also during this period, however, where he... There's a weird section in Surprise by Joy. Have either of you guys read it? Yes. I haven't, but I know about, about the section. The, what the, yeah, the there's weird, a weird, weird section. section. There's a really book. weird... Yeah. It's, it's a really weird section yeah. in Surprise by Joy where I he... I had to reread it because I didn't even... I was he like, defend, he can't possibly be talking about what he's, I think he's talking he about. He talks about... He's talking about it. He talks about sodomy that happened and the sort of... Harvey Weinsteinian power plays that these older boys would have on the younger boys, and he completely blows over it and kind of says it's just something that happened. Yeah, it's there's this. It's not. He's not exactly ex- like if you just asked him point blank, was it good or bad? He'd probably say bad. But he's like, insofar as they were trying to express love with that, it's a really weird. It's weird section. Yeah, in that book. I wish I could have reread it before now. This, yeah. but it's it's it was a strange section. Yes. And we're going to get to some other strangeness with him later. Surprised by too. Joy, by the way, in case you don't know, is it's his sort of spiritual autobiography. He talks about his education, his growing up. Mm-hmm. I always thought that it was a book that would culminate with him meeting Joy Davidman, his future wife. But yeah. she doesn't. She's not actually in the book. It's just surprised by the joy of God, basically. Yeah. So the whole idea of northernness and stuff it actually comes from that book. Mm-hmm. He talks a lot about that, and it's this sense of the other that he. Experience as a child, he abandoned now in this period of boarding schools because he became your typical teenage prideful kid who became an atheist. Mm -hmm. You got to think that some of the stuff that happened sexually 
influence that as well because I don't think he was innocent of anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard not to read. It's hard not lines. to imagine yeah. that he was. Yeah, it's yeah. hard to imagine he wasn't. So if that's the right way to say it. Yeah, I mean, I don't uh, know how else to it's say a hard it. to imagine he wasn't innocent. That's what I mean. Yeah. So anyways, so he went to these. Wait, now you've got me doing the math. It's hard to imagine he wasn't innocent. No. But do you think he was or was not innocent? <laughs> I think he wasn't innocent. If it's hard, it's hard to, to imagine, imagine that he, he was, was that he was innocent. That's right. That's if it's the way. It's hard to, to say. imagine that he wasn't innocent. <laughs> then it's easy to imagine that he was innocent. Thank you. But you're saying I'm getting myself all wrapped up into <laughs> tangles over here with my yeah. Well, we really don't. We, we won't make a big deal out of that part of the book. But you should know that that's in Surprised by Joy, and it's pretty weird. Well, then there's also, and we we may as well just mention it. There's the weirdness around him and Jane Moore later in his life, mm-hmm. and so there's just some cloudiness and strangeness to his history that never we don't know a whole lot about, and that might be fine. I mean, it's not like we have to drag his laundry out in front of everyone, right? But it's also nothing that he ever appears to have addressed or repented of, mm-hmm. if there was something there to repent of. Yeah. So it is worth mentioning. So after his uh, stay at the boarding schools, he famously went back home and had a, a tutorship with William Kirkpatrick, this really brilliant tutor who taught him to love logic, to love reason, to love Greek poetry, to love a lot of the things that C.S. Lewis would then go on to Oxford and really fall in love with and remain a champion of until you know, he died. And so... And the story I think he tells in Surprised by Joy, and I'm not going to remember the details, but he, the, when he first meets this gentleman, he picks up, the guy picks him up from the train or something, and they're walking down the street, and C.S. Lewis says something like, oh, what a pretty house or something like that, you know, just making conversation. And the guy's like, why do you say that? What constitutes a pretty house? Just takes him to task, tears him apart, makes him prove his presuppositions. And just, and Lewis just said like this guy from that day on, this is the guy, right? Yeah. I mean, this is the fox basically. That's right. um, And that was going to be my point was that, so now you see with William Kirkpatrick, the sort of combining of the two elements that would eventually make, I think, um, until we have faces, this C.S. Lewis was at this point, Orwell, basically. Mm -hmm. He believed in philosophy. He believed in reason. He believed that beauty and reason and logic and philosophy could tell you all the truth there was to know about the world. This is who he was as he prepared to go to Oxford in the early 1900s or mid, late 19-teens, whatever. Mm -hmm. As a child, he had this strong impulse towards the mythic, towards this other world that was beyond him. And so you have to know right now, I mean, that's who C.S. Lewis was. He had these combating forces within him. He would go on to Oxford. He won a scholarship in 1916. Everybody knows exactly then what happened because it's 1916. He was there for a year. Then he was shipped off to World War I. He was wounded, saw two of his close friends die because a shell exploded, killed them, wounded him. And like everybody else in the modernist era, we talk a lot about how World War I was essential for understanding modernism. He lost all his faith in humanity. He became a pessimist, and he was just disenchanted with life, exactly like happened with T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot was in those same trenches, really shaped who they were and who they became. So um, I know I stress it a lot, but really to understand what modernism was and why it became as cold as it did, was you have to remember that World War I was really horrible. It was the worst war that humanity had ever experienced. Machines just killing people left and right. Your friends dying in front of you in very horrific ways. And that changes a person. Mm-hmm. And nobody knew it would be that bad. Mm-hmm. So anyways, he goes back then to Oxford and is successful. He takes firsts in almost all his subjects. 
I think he takes first in all his subjects, takes a first in English. What that meant at the time was you were rated on how well you would do in your final tests at Oxford, and a first was as high as you could get. So he was brilliant. He took firsts in everything, and then was asked, I don't think he ever wrote a PhD, he was asked to be a fellow pretty soon after that, and then taught for 50 some odd, that wasn't 50 years, was it? 30, 40 years. He died in the ni- 1963. Yeah, he was he was teaching around the late 20s, so it had been a little less than 40 years. Yeah, he didn't live to be that old, I don't think. No, he lived so. to be 63. Yeah, so yeah. If, if he taught for 50 years, then he would have been <laughs> he taught at 13. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, nobody said math was my strength. Um, <laughs> one of the packs he had with one of his friends, they, they told each other if they died, they would take care of each other's family. One of his friends, Patty Moore... When he died, um, C.S. Lewis promised that he would take care of his mother, Jane Moore, mm-hmm. who he had been introduced to. She was 45 at the time, and he did. He took care of her call. He actually lived with her for a long while, called her his mother. Hmm. But some people, there's a lot of weirdness around that relationship. One of his close friends, Owen Barfield, who we'll talk about in just a minute, said there was like a 50-50 chance that something sexual was happening between them. Right. And so... And there again, we're not saying people have to assume the worst, but it's kind of hard not to read between the lines with some of this stuff in Lewis's life. Yeah. But it is important to know that he tried to protect that side of himself, keep that very secret until uh, later in life when he finally would meet Joy Davidman. Great Joy Davidman. She was a poet and a writer and he met her, fell in love. I think he met her because he was editing one of her books Mm -hmm. and they fell in love married in 1956 and then she died in 1960 of cancer and there's a great anthony hopkins movie people can go and watch shadowlands, shadowlands. yeah i haven't seen that movie for like, maybe 15, have you ever seen 20 it 20 years but i've never seen it i maybe, have to watch i think i actually a, own a copy an empty episode that we need to fill maybe we will watch shadowlands it's i mean it's sentimental and schmaltzy yeah, but it's not gonna but anthony hopkins is c.s lewis in my mind now yeah yeah so and he does a does a great Anthony job. Hopkins, what do you expect? Um, you know, and so he died in 1963. He has a poet's corner in Westminster Abbey um, where Jane Austen and Shakespeare, all those guys are honored. So he definitely became a man of letters in those periods. People know a lot about that. Um, I have a list of all the books he wrote here. There's a lot. Let's mm-hmm. just say a lot of fiction, that he, nonfiction that he wrote, a lot of like not as many books of fiction and some books of poetry. He actually saw himself as a poet first. When he failed at being a poet, he became a fiction writer, but he was a brilliant scholar. I have one of his books of scholarship here, which is famous. Well, actually two of them, but I can't tell you what they are. You can give the initials though. Yeah. S-I-M-A-R-L and a P to P-L. A P to P-L. A P to P-L. A P to P-L, the best thing he ever wrote in my opinion. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's just great. Highly recommend you going. There's no reason for you to read P-L without reading a P to P-L. Yeah. I'd actually say if you're going to read one of the two, you should probably read a P to PL. Just read a P to PL and not PL. Don't even read PL. Sometimes I like PL and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I think PL is overrated. I think PL might be a little overrated. I like PL, but... We're going to have to do it. I love a P to PL. (laughs) We'll have to do PL and Moby Dick in the same year. That would be crazy. PL and MD in the same year? (laughs) Yeah, that'd be a crazy year. (laughs) So that's a brief overview of his life. You know, the, uh, during during his period of scholarship, he was writing all his famous fiction. The one we're reading today, Till We Have Faces, at the very end of his career. So we should position the book. And uh, when did this one get published? It was like 1950, late 1950s, right? Not hard to find out, presumably. Um, I would have thought that it would be somewhere here, but it doesn't say. Oh, 1954? 1954. No. no. That's when he was a fellow until 1954. 
Copyright 1956. Okay, 1956. So he wrote this towards the end of his career. He actually wrote it. Joy Davidman helped write it and influence it. But this was a book in the making since he was an undergraduate. Apparently, he was haunted by the story of Psyche and Cupid because of some of the illogical elements to the story. And he spent the rest of his life trying to figure out how to make that into a book. First, like I said, he was a poet first. He tried to do some versifications of the story. They all failed, but he always wanted to do it through the perspective of the sister to use her as an element to look at the way we fail in love and then what true love looks like, what actual real love would look like. At first, it was going to be called, so when he actually started writing the book, he was going to call it Bareface. That's right. But his editor really didn't like the name Bareface. He said it sounded too much like a Western, apparently. And so he finally went with the line that was already in the book and seemed like... So when you get to that part of the book, when she says, we'll only get to see the gods, you know, until we have faces, that actually wasn't written as a nod to the title of the book that in, that inspired him to take that line and make it the title of the book. So he wanted Bareface because it was a nice play on the fact that Oral had issues with showing her face mm-hmm. and also the fact that she accused the gods of Bareface lying. Just mm-hmm. a lot of play on words with Bareface, but the editor convinced him and he went with Till We Have Faces, which I think is probably the better title. Yeah, good job, editor. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's that's the story behind this. If you want to know kind of the story, this is taking, taken from Apuleius's Golden Ass, mm-hmm. which is a, a collection of Greek stories or Roman stories, I guess. Yes, it's the only ancient Roman novel in Latin to survive in its entirety. So there we go. So that influenced him. He took that story and he made it into this one. At the end of Till We Have Faces, he has a note. Did your book have it as well? Do we all have the same one? Mine did, yeah. Where he tells you the story, basically, mm-hmm. and then tells you some of the changes he made. Yes. That's a helpful thing if you want to go and just kind of see the basic ways he changed the story. Right. But pretty much it's the same idea. Psyche and Cupid get together. They convince her to take a look at Cupid because he's told her not to. The drop of wax falls on him and wakes him up, and she's banished for a while until she does these series of tasks, tasks and then she is reunited with But the sister is very much just a stock evil sister character. They're the sisters, in fact. And don't they both end up... I don't think C.S. Lewis tells us this in his afterward, but don't they... I think that what ends up happening is that they both throw themselves off of a cliff to... Like, the idea, I guess, is that Cupid will catch them or something, and then Cupid's like, nope. Goodbye. Bye. I think that's right, yeah. So this is very much like uh, Wicked or one of those stupid Gregory Maguire kind of... Yeah, in that sense, I mean, this is much better than Wicked. Yeah, for sure, yeah. Yeah. But it's in the same vein of, let's take a step back, try and apply psychological realism where an old famous story didn't, and and see what happens. And so, but you can see also where his early love of, like, the weird Celtic origins of this and um, pagan ritual, mm-hmm. mythic traditions, a lot of the stuff that he would have gotten from reading stuff like the Mabignogian, I think that's how you say it, the, like the source material for the Grail legend and the Arthurian stories, because he loved that sort of stuff. But then also W.B. Yeats, all these Irish people who were dealing with old Irish legends and stories of the Druids and the fairies, very heavily influential here, because mm-hmm. it's dark and it's weird when you get the priest of, is it Ungod or whatever her name is? Ungod, yeah. Yeah. So to bring it, to bring it all, tie it back to the main points I was making with his childhood biography. With Till We Have Faces, you see Apuleius, which he would have probably read with Kirkpatrick, but then you also see the weird northern strangeness that he fell in love with 
come into here as well. So then to go back to Surprised by Joy and look at his conversion experience, why he said he was converted in the first place, he said it was because these things, these elements that haunted him as a child came back to him later in life. And he began to realize that those things that haunted him, those things that then he would see in other things, one of the novels he pointed to, do you know what it was? I laughed when I saw it again. I don't remember. Because... I realized I had forgotten that it was in Surprise by Joy because I just because a friend of mine recommended it to me. Fan- oh, Fantastic. Yeah, that wonderful novel. Yeah. You can listen to Brandon talk about it in our childhood books, one of those. Episodes. Yeah, yeah. It, it was heavily influential for me. George MacDonald. It's strange, yeah. I had some of the same experiences as C.S. Lewis without having found them through him. Mm-hmm. And that, but a friend of mine recommended Fantasties. Now I laugh at Fantasties, but C.S. Lewis, I guess, stayed in love with the book. The entire and, problem with C.S. Lewis, which we are going to spend the rest of these two episodes dealing with, <laughs> is the fact that he never figured out to laugh at Fantasties. Yeah, he, he <laughs> stayed in love with that book for the rest of his life and that whole weird mystical element to it. That's kind of what he would point to as what God would use to save him until finally he was like riding on a bus or something and he... I want to say it was a motorcycle ride, a famous motorcycle ride. Yeah. It was a bicycle ride. Bicycle? Or something. And he said he was checkmated. Basically, that's the imagery he uses. He said he was a pawn and God had... Or he was the king, I guess that's the right imagery. And God had checkmated him and it was over. And he was the most unwilling convert he thinks to have ever been, but he was converted. But it's important, really, really, really important to realize that this whole idea of Northern weirdness was was influential in C.S. Lewis's conversion. If you want to understand, surprised by joy, if you want to understand the failure of the last battle, all that stuff, you have to understand that he came from that position. So just a few more things then. Sure. Um, I don't think we can get away without talking about the Inklings. Mm-hmm. Because in the Inklings is actually going to get us into the last point I want to make. So uh, Inklings are famous. It was this book club that he was part of. Not not necessarily a book club. It was a group of friends who would go to a pub together and they would talk about the books they were writing. They were all writers, or they would make fun of other writers. So on the Patreon thing, you can hear us read one of the poems. Indeed, you can. From one of the ladies that they made fun of. It's absolutely they, fantastic. They had a game where they would pass these poems around and they would try to see who could make it the longest without laughing. <laughs> and that person would win. I think that. I was in the video yeah. on Patreon. I was totally tuned out until like that caught my ear and it really, it really tickled it's, me. And that, you can hear Jake suddenly burst out with laughter. Yeah, and he, it's he lost funny. The game. It's pretty awful stuff. It's funny. Now, who were these inklings? Well, the most famous. Well, the two most famous would be C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien. Everybody's, everybody's dear J.R.R. Tolkien. John Reynolds, whatever. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien. We'll just call him Tolkien. <laughs> Tolkien for short. J.R.R. Tolkien was very influential in uh, helping in C.S. Lewis's conversion. Um, talk to him about fairies and myth and how Christ was the ultimate myth. <laughs> fairies. <laughs> Is it very into influential in uh, I know and then we say fairies conversion talking to him about fairies and myths it's funny you got the, it, the two favorite tools of the apostle paul right yeah <laughs> it's funny but that really you can't underplay the fact that those things were very influential in cs lewis being attracted to christianity mm-hmm. yep so tolkien would t- he was the one who gave cs lewis the idea about christ being the ultimate myth if you go and read god in the docks he has essays on the fact that christ is like the myth he's the myth that the all myths, myths yeah, uh, yeah, whatever, that all other myths come from. Mm-hmm. He's the ultimate myth. He's the myth made flesh, the real myth, the actual myth, mm-hmm. stuff like that. So this stuff that would really get C.S. Lewis excited, right. that came from Tolkien. 
a lot of that came from Tolkien, but it also came from the other guys, the other two weirdos who were part of this group. And when I say weirdos, they really were weirdos. I think we've talked about Charles Williams before. Yeah. And we've talked, I don't know if we've ever mentioned Owen Barfield. I don't think we have. But man, are these guys pretty strange. So Charles Williams, um, he was into ideas of like um, co-inheritance and love, that, but like love that was between everything and all nature and all creation and stuff. And so he would pre, so he has a famous book on uh, Beatrice Dante's love mm-hmm. and how she's a symbol of how real Christian love should look and how love is what redeems everything and redeems all nature and redeems. And so he would always be talking in terms of love and love and love and love. And so this just really, C.S. Lewis got really excited by this stuff. I mean, that is till we have faces. It's just love, 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 love. 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 <laughs> do, do, do. love. That's all you need. Yeah, that's all you need, apparently. Yeah. So, and then you too can be either Cupid or Psyche. Yeah. You choose. Cupid or Psyche, yes. I guess he wasn't into gender fluidity. No, you could just Maybe. be Psyche. We're all Psyche. We're all Psyche. I think. I think that's right. We'll find out. Yeah. I, I don't know. I still don't understand. <laughs> but <laughs> we're going to figure it out so, at the end of these episodes. But yeah, so I've, Charles Williams was heavily influential on C.S. Lewis. He dedicated some of his books to Charles Williams. Charles Williams was a weirdo, though. He wrote a lot of novels. Like, one of his novels is about the platonic forms. I'm not going to explain the platonic forms to you because unless you're a nerdy philosopher, you don't need to understand it. But the platonic forms come down to earth like aliens, Please. and they're like traipsing about. And that's the story. It's Nobody called, wanted any it's called the place forms to be. Yeah, it's called about. the place it's of the, the lion. Novel. Yeah, that's the novel. It's called the place of the lion. It's a weird novel. And there's the other one, like the descent into hell. The descent into hell, yeah. where people are throughout this day, they're either going to heaven or they're going to hell, mm-hmm. and it's one after the other. It's a, it's all this weird mysticism and stuff in these novels. I've not read a lot of Charles Williams. But is my understanding true or false that that hideous strength in all its weird glory is? pretty heavily influenced by him. Yeah, it reads a lot like Maybe a Charles so Williams novel. A lot of his yeah. other stories. Yeah, it, it's, it reads a lot like a Charles Williams novel. T.S. Eliot called Charles Williams a spiritual whodunit or something like that, basically. Mm-hmm. So that's Charles Williams for you. But the big influence was this guy named Owen Barfield, who they all looked to as kind of the genius who um, was the first inkling and the last inkling. He was kind of the founder and the father of the inklings. He wrote a book called Poetic Diction, where he really argued that myth and metaphor were the essential elements of language. And so language worked around myth and metaphor, and that was essential to understanding human language and human identity, and that everything went back to metaphor, and that all language after metaphor was just trying to get back to me. It was just all, and it's as weird as it sounds. It's all mystical and strange. And Owen Barfield got into this thing called anthroposophy, which was a branch of another thing called theosophy, which was started by this mystic in America called Madame Blavatsky. And it's quite a bit like Scientology. It's just weird. And it believed that man could know the spiritual world scientifically, and you could have access to it through your imagination, and that your imagination, through things like metaphor and poetry, could understand the spiritual world. And Owen Barfield was really into this. And Owen Barfield was really influential on C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis, through him, would come into contact with guys like Rudolf Steiner. I don't know if you ever met Rudolf Steiner, but his thinking, which was anthroposophic and moronic. <laughs> so um, moronic. it was really moronic. It's also, I mean, a, a short aside, in Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis does say he briefly 
thought about going to the occult and Satanism. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so C.S. Lewis was always tempted this way. W.B. Yeats later in his life would become a theosophist and was always like through automatic writing and stuff like that, trying to get at what spiritualism is. What's the weird Jewish thing? Is it the Kabbalah? The Kabbalah, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Kabbalah is connected to theosophy. Mm-hmm. And so theosophy, the Kabbalah, all this stuff where you think that through weird symbols and mysticism, like, and it gets really close to things like that Aleister Crowley and the guys that would start the satan- satanic movements mm-hmm. would be doing as well. So all this magical occultism stuff would be very tied together. And it's, so that's why it seems kind of nasty and weird because it was kind of nasty and weird. And Owen Barfield was kind of nasty and weird. And he was very influential in C.S. Lewis's life remained so until he died. So they never had a falling out. And so I think it's, so this is just, before we get into discussing the book, it's really important for you to realize that C.S. Lewis, he was a great apologist. Mere Christianity's good for the most part. Do you agree? Oh, okay. Yeah, it's fine. Mere Christianity's fine. Um, it's got some What's the really good one? Stuff. The one that we would actually recommend? The, uh, the Abolition of Man. The Abolition of Man. Yeah. Fantastic. fantastic. Yeah. It's a great book. He had all these things. He was the clear reasoner. He was, in many ways, the fox, but he was the fox who was always fighting this weird pagan poet side of him as well. And the older he got, the more the weird pagan poet began to win. And the weird pagan poet was this Rudolf Steiner anthroposophic stuff that came from Owen Barfield. When he's just being the fox, though, he's fantastic. Like, when he's actually just talking about... I'm going to just give it away. The PL to... What were we saying? The PL, the, the P the, to PL, the P to PL is the yeah. is a preface that he wrote to Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost, and it's just great. It's yeah. just wonderful. I mean, it's enjoyable to read, and it teaches you so much about poetry. I used it a lot when we were talking about Beowulf, believe it or not, because it's mm-hmm. just a good primer on what epic poetry is, and it's just it's 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 dense and it's it can be difficult, but there's really good stuff in there. It's good stuff, yeah, yeah. So. The things that I really wanted to stress were the mythic stuff and what that would lead him to later in life, the kind of friends he had and the inklings, and then also how that wars with this philosopher rationalist in him. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you see those things, then Till We Have Faces begins to make more sense. Why that was his swan Mm -hmm. song, basically. So that's that's all I've got. Anything you'd like to add? No, I don't have anything to add. Me neither, except for... What's that sound? It's the airplane going over. Indicating baggage check, part of the show where we talk about our baggage. And I'd like to spend a little bit more time maybe today talking about baggage because C.S. Lewis is huge. And I think we all have relationship with him. It's a little bit hard not to if you're an evangelical Christian in the West, probably in the East too, for all I know. But when I grew up, C.S. Lewis was certainly ubiquitous. What's your history with C.S. Lewis, Jake? Uh, long-time listeners will remember maybe that uh, my first encounter with Lewis would have been third around third grade, uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Right. And then I uh, read all of Narnia and loved it. And then you basically just have to flash forward till about my senior year of high school. And I'm coming alive spiritually. And pastor friend uh, recommends Desiring God by John Piper. And I recognize that name. I C.S. Lewis, I think he wrote some kids' books that I really loved. Because within Um, the first chapter of Desiring God, I think... Yeah, I mean, basically, so then I got this sort of like Lewisian philosophy as interpreted by John Piper, very foundational to Desiring God. I did two things with that book, Desiring God. I went to Jonathan Edwards and I went to C.S. Lewis, and I ended up hanging out more with Jonathan Edwards around then than Lewis, Red Screw Tape. I bought like 
mere Christianity and the problem of pain, but I didn't feel, and part of it was I didn't really feel, I didn't feel like there was much there for me with Lewis. I'd sort of come to faith kind of philosophically. I mean, not, there are a lot of things happening, moral, spiritual, sin things going on. And then there was this sort of like Ecclesiastes kind of thing going on in my head of everything is meaningless and I just wanted the Bible. And so I didn't really spend a lot of time with Lewis then. But I did end up reading uh, screw tape letters. And the other thing is that everybody was trying to force C.S. Lewis down my throat. And I just had a sort of natural, visceral reaction to that. I didn't want that. If everybody is trying to give you C.S. Lewis, then I was suspicious. And then over the course of time, I ended up, you know, I read The Abolition of Man. I read a couple of things here and there, uh, reflections on the Psalms, I guess some of the more off the beaten path types of things. I, I mean, I did read the the Piper stuff. So what was was the weight of glory? Yeah. Weight of glory, very famous essay. And if you want to understand C.S. Lewis's kind of the whole, his whole conception of life and the spiritual journey, a lot of what feeds into Till We Have Faces, Weight of Glory is a good place to start. Yeah, it is a good place to start, I think. And then I uh, got turned on to the Ransom Trilogy, Mm-hmm. I said it right. Mm-hmm. Stephen Baker would be proud. Yep. Not well, the space trilogy, but the ransom trilogy. Right. What did you think about those books? What did you <laughs> think about the first one, for example? <laughs> no, you, <laughs> you, you gotta say it. You gotta tell us. I am so, gonna. I'm gonna tell you. Okay. Okay. Right, go I'm gonna tell you. Okay. Exactly. Exactly what I thought about. The, about the, if I was fine. Okay. It's okay. I, I enjoyed it the first read. Second read, not so much. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do it. Okay, maybe I'll do it. I think you have to do it. What about Paralandra? <laughs> How'd you like that one? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Out of this world, maybe. <laughs> no, I don't. Was Paralandra? No, we're not. We're not there yet. Yes, yes, because you have to go beyond the world, man. Oh, and then what about that hideous? Strength? <laughs> if, if well, if Paralandra was out of this world, then that hideous strength was out of this galaxy. Out of this galaxy, Brandon. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> one of the great uh, things. I really enjoyed. Yeah, one of the greatest things I've ever written. Um, in my life. If you don't know the story, um, I uh, what's the word for when you sadistically... You doxed me. Yeah, I doxed Jake <laughs> and I found some dorky thing that he wrote many years ago where it was like, if you enjoyed Paralandra, uh, Paralandra was okay, but uh, th- that hideous strength is out of this galaxy. <laughs> and I've been making fun of Jake ever since for... <laughs> True. I, 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 I think, I, I mean, I haven't read Paralandra, I don't know, 10 years, but I really enjoyed it the first go around. I found the central conceit of Paralandra to be pretty compelling. Mm-hmm. And I stayed up and read through the night to finish. Really? Yeah, I did. I th- I think what he did what he did for me was I mean he gave me the real drama of the garden it worked it's the fall of man it's why we are where we are it's here was uh, him conceiving of a do over not a do over but there it is again happening on another planet can it be stopped and if it's going to be stopped how could it be stopped and uh, yeah I found it compelling but then that hideous strength was. But and I may find if I went back to Paralandra, maybe I'd find it boring. I don't know. But yeah, reread the Narnia books several times as an adult as well to your kids. Yeah, to my uh, even for fun, once for fun, just by myself, just to see if they still held up. I'd like to do that on the show one of these days. We it wasn't on our book list for this year, but it'd be fun to go through at least one or two of those and yeah, yeah, we we should totally do that. One of the most readable things to a kid, Narnia. Yeah. Yeah. And then you just sort of, my baggage about Lewis then 
I learned to love Lewis and be really appreciative of him. And despite, you know, the things that that make you uncomfortable about him, the way that he can uh, fire the imagination and snap you out of your cold realism or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a really, it's a real gift. But the man, the 20th century, early 21st century evangelical love fest with C.S. Lewis is just really grating and really yucky. Mm -hmm. So I bring... A lot of, I think, just plain loathing and hatred for that. And not just like in that everybody has to make the CS list the greatest thing ever, but everybody's got to try to be him and do, and everybody's looking for like the next great CS Lewis and going to try to do, you know, I just, man. He's a, we frequently make fun of him. I think we do Chesterton more because in our circles, that's the more obnoxious go-to for a lot of people. But on the booking, I'm sure if you've, if you listen to the whole series of, 70 booking episodes or whatever it is we're up to you've probably heard us make oh that guy was just trying to be c.s lewis or nice Mm -hmm. job being c.s lewis kid or just makes nice little comments because everybody wants to be the next c.s lewis yep and he was good yeah and he's he's really great and you have to be careful to i mean there's a reason why people fanboy over him Mm -hmm. and yeah we all got to do an exercise where we went sentence by sentence through weight of glory Mm -hmm. and saw how artful he is yeah, he's he is a true genius. There's yeah. no question about it. He's masterful. He's masterful. And worth your time, worth yeah. reading and engaging with him. But just the same. You know, I, so when I came to this book, this is a book I had never read before. I, for a long time, don't think I knew uh, that it was a novel. I think I might have seen the title and thought it might have just been a cute name for an essay or a, a work of nonfiction or something like that. And then when I found out it was a novel, I was wondering, oh, is this going to be like The Great Divorce or mm-hmm. something like that? So I didn't know what to expect coming in. Yeah. Realized what it was, and then I did a little bit of quick reading about the Cupid and Psyche myth, discovered that there's a proper pronunciation of Orwall, huh. which is her name. Orwall? Is that how you say Orwall. Orwall. Like just the W? Orwall. Like or from the Orwall. ground and wall. Is that like Pink Floyd's the wall? Orwall. Orwall. Like Norwall, but without the N. Yep. Yep. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I thought of too. So yeah, I, that's that's my baggage. I don't know if you want to probe that. Uh, I do, but I'll give mine. We can kind of do it and then we can do a little probing. My baggage, I also grew up with Narnia. My mom read them aloud and I sort of resented it at the time because I was brat, as I've described many times. And, and, and I've always, 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 much like the great Professor Tolkien, I'm a little great like that in that we both have an aversion to allegory. I, I take that back. I like it when Jesus does it. <laughs> but... When C.S. Lewis does it, not so much. Uh, I like a lot of things about Narnia, and I've always enjoyed Narnia, and I remember if I could kind of get over my why is mom reading as a boring book of it all? I did actually like Narnia as a kid and I've come to really appreciate it. But the things that have stuck with me about it have always kind of incidental thing with wise things, you know, he's not a tame lion. That's something that I think about in reference to God's work in my life all the time. But that's something I cringe at every time I hear it, because yeah. it's so overused. But it is overused. Good. It is totally overused, and blah blah blah. Hackneyed people are dumb. Get some new references, people. I agree, but it's a good. It's the reason it's overused because it's pretty good. And there's a lot of there's you know I can't think of any of them right now, but there must be ten or fifteen things from C.S. Lewis that are just like little 
thought benchmarks in my life that just go to's as far, you know, little metaphors that he's given me for thinking about things. The one that actually always comes back to me is anytime I'm tempted by sin, I think about the way that Diggory, I want to say, is tempted by sin where he's, if I don't ring this bell in Charn, then I'll always wonder what would happen if I would have rang, rang the bell. That's just so indicative of my life as a sinner. Mm-hmm. If I don't do this right now, then I'll just always be oppressed by the fact that I didn't do it. So I better just do it and then I can repent later or something. So C.S. Lewis had me my number there and I've always appreciated that. I don't remember what order I discovered C.S. Lewis in. You can hear my space trilogy or yeah, I'm just going to call it the space trilogy. You can hear my space trilogy because I think that's about what it deserves. You can hear my space trilogy baggage and hear me get Stephen Baker's goat a little bit because I don't really like the first two of those books all that much or I've never been able, even been able to read them because they're so boring. But I'm told Paralando would be quite good if I would just give myself to it, but I've never been able to. And I really have tried with both those books. But I love C.S. Lewis's nonfiction. I love Mere Christianity. There's some really problematic stuff in Mere Christianity. Not going to pretend like it's all perfect. But what I particularly like about it, and the reason I keep, I've gone back to it over the years, is not because of any great spiritual wisdom or insight, but just because I like C.S. Lewis's writing. I have always appreciated. And The Abolition of Man's a great essay with a lot of wisdom, but one of the principal things I like about that essay is just simply how it's written, the metaphors that he chooses, the way he builds his point. It's just like some of the most pleasurable writing to read as writing up there with E.B. White. E.B. White's the only person I can think of in the 20th century that I'd say even comes close to just being, I just like to read this guy. He could be talking about anything. I don't care. It's just... Enjoyable, fun, compelling funny yeah and but not overwhelming about it like chesterton's funny and great but also he's like doing cartwheels and standing on his head yeah and this really is more for it i think i think good humored might be the better way to yeah he's good humored and he's and he can be really funny but it's just the way his essays build and the clean crisp writing the way that it looks on the page the length of the paragraphs just everything about it is sexy He's just one of those 20th century writers that just got it. Like he's yep. the perfect synthesis of everything that came before, the, you know, all the Victorian stuff leading up to him and then everything that E.B. White and Hemingway and all those people would do to strip the language down. C.S. Lewis is right at the pleasure center where he's got a really nice old school style combined with just like, I mean, it's just pure. I don't, I love his style. I mm-hmm. love his style. And I understand why people try and rip it off. And I can actually be more forgiving of people trying to rip it off than I can of Chesterton because C.S. Lewis looks like he'd be a lot easier to rip off because he's not doing calisthenics like Chesterton is. He's not showing off like Chesterton is. It's just really well-constructed writing. And so people think, oh, oh that's, that's easy. You know, there's no... Not because flashy. it reads easy, it probably uh, writes easy. It's almost impossible. It's almost impossible. What C.S. Lewis does yep. is so... And it must have taken... It's so well-crafted. It must have taken forever to, for him to write anything. I, I'd be very impressed if... I mean, And it just reads like all great art. It just looks easy. It looks like he just sat down and wrote a stream of consciousness and just kind of casually, you feel like an old friend is talking to you. But the way that his points build, you should read The Weight of Glory. You should read The Abolition of Man. Those are probably the best examples of this. Especially The Weight of Glory goes to some weird places, but 
the way it gets there is just it's he's a beautiful beautiful writer i think an underrated fiction writer too i like the way that his books we didn't get to talk about this on the strength that much but i just like the way that that book is constructed i like a lot of the descriptive passages um same thing for till we have faces he doesn't give you a lot of description you don't really know what gloam is like exactly but you know enough, you know enough, and the things that you do know are evocative. The smell of the priest, for example, until yeah. we have faces is just like, how much holy incense have I smelled over my life? And who's ever thought to put that in a book? Nobody that I've read, you know? Um, just the, the fact that a smell would cling to this guy, that's just one random example that occurs yeah. to me. Mingled with blood and death. M- mingled with blood and death. And you can just smell it. I mean, you know exactly. It's a butcher's shop crossed with a farm, crossed with an Indian bazaar somewhere. It's gross and it's overpowering and it's there's some something beautiful and spicy in there too. And it's just like, it's perfect. It's perfect. So C.S. Lewis, I can think of very few, if any, 20th, 20th century writers that I'd say were his peers, and they'd be people like E.B. White or people that are just known for the beauty of their their style. So I didn't mean to actually go off on that. I don't even I don't know if that even counts as baggage. But that's the thing that I appreciate about C.S. Lewis the most, and that's the reason that I always want to cut him some slack with his weird spiritual universalism crap, mystical crap. I hate walking into a Christian bookstore. A, a just you can you can put a period at the end of that sentence. I just hate to walk into a Christian bookstore because most of them are lame and full of pastel colors and bad books, and I don't know that I've ever really been in a good one. Sorry, good Christian booksellers, if you're listening, but uh, there's a lot of bad Christian. But every Christian bookstore I've ever walked into is lame and terrible and has a bunch of terrible books and then has a giant shelf dedicated to C.S. Lewis and it's got every single possible book by C.S. Lewis and compilations of C.S. Lewis and it's just like it's obviously a money-making machine and it's pretty off-putting and it's pretty off-putting to think that a gullible public would buy all these books that are like scrapped together. It's not as bad as some of the stuff that Christopher Tolkien did with Tolkien taking every napkin that Tolkien scribbled on and making an opus out of it. But I know there are people that are arguing for it. I don't really know. Maybe Christopher Tolkien honored his father's legacy. Maybe he didn't. I don't really know enough about that one. But in both cases, it's just kind of off-putting to see how much money has been made by the rights holders to these these guys and how gullible people have been about, seemingly gullible, I'll say, about here's money. Thanks for issuing another edition of this or that. Mm-hmm. So I find that whole aspect of C.S. Lewis super obnoxious, but I don't want to judge the guy. I mean, it's not his, that's not really his fault, I guess. I don't know. Probably so. not. What? Probably not. Probably not. I don't know. Uh, he's awfully weird. If you want to read the worst thing that C.S. Lewis ever wrote, I'd say it's his reflections on the Psalms, which oh, yeah. I just think is super ungodly and unhelpful. A lot of it, actually. Although maybe Jake will remember some, there might be some really good passages. Yeah, there's too. a, there's something on uh, on the nature of praise where he talks about. I think that I mean I think you, all you really need. Excuse me. I think all you really need to read from Reflections on the Psalm is what Piper quotes. If if this is the same passage I'm thinking of, but he talks about how he'd once thought of of God's commands to praise Him as like an old woman, vain and desiring glory, and he he has this like quote wretch. What is his glory? Like it was the way that he, the blasphemous way that he thought about about God, and then uh, he realized one day that the whole world rang with praise, lovers praising their mistresses or yeah. people praising what they, and then he realized that praise is just the consummation of joy. 
Mm-hmm. It's you when you see something that you love and enjoy, you can't help but praise it. It's just what you do. And you want other people to share in that joy. And you want the objects of your love and joy to know that they bring you joy. And you and, haven't and actually you experienced to, the joy fully. You haven't. You haven't yeah, yeah, it's not fully. That's, he uses the word consummation. It's mm-hmm. not consummated. It's not fully experienced until it's expressed in praise. Mm-hmm. And then he realized, you know, w- when God commands us to praise him. He's only commanding us to fully enjoy him Hmm. for all that he is. And there you have John Piper's entire career encapsulated in one... In in one very small passage from Reflections on the Psalm, that Mm -hmm. one idea, you know. um, He's built his life and ministry around that idea. And tremendously helped me and thousands of other people not trying to be snide about John Piper. Yeah, I I wasn't. It was very helpful to me. I thought I was the one that might have Okay. Like it. I wasn't accusing you. <laughs> John Piper's entire ministry summed up in that one thought that, no, 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 no. John Piper's built a good ministry on that one thought of C.S. Lewis's, but that's neither here or there. What's your baggage, Brandon? Man, you guys have pretty much covered it all, it sounds like. Kind of a strange relationship with C.S. Lewis. I liked some of the same stuff he liked, as we saw, but yeah. I didn't necessarily fall in love with Lewis ever. I liked his essays quite a bit. We didn't read the Chronicles of Narnia as a kid. We may have read The Horse and His Boy. I remember that one vaguely. But I think some of the first stuff I read by him was the Space or the Ransom Trilogy, Space Trilogy. I'll just say both. Mm-hmm. I thought it was fine. I never was a sci-fi fan. I liked Dickens and I liked Tolstoy. So Lewis's fiction never really did it for me. I liked Fantasties. So some of his fiction I liked too. So The Great Divorce was fine. I never was a big fan of the screw tape letters. Mm-hmm. If I had to be honest, really, yeah, I like them now, but not as a teenager. I, I I'll yeah. tell you what, which one I don't like is that Great Divorce. The Great Divorce yeah. is bad. I don't yeah, want it's to see it's like a one star yeah. out of book. I, I but don't like yeah, it so that's what he always seemed like to me was that he had an idea, a philosophical idea that he wanted to turn into like a fancy. It was a fiction, mm-hmm. and so he would play around with ideas in fiction, and that was fine for me. But I, what I really wanted in fiction was like what Tolstoy and Dickens did with mm-hmm. fiction, and so I. I think that's the reason C.S. Lewis never really came under my radar. It was like G.K. Chesterton. I like G.K. Chesterton's fiction just fine. But all these guys, I wasn't really wanting to read their um, prose. I wasn't wanting, I mean, I was wanting to read their prose. I mean, I wasn't wanting to read their essays. Right. I didn't get into that until later. Then I did come across God in the Docks, which is a collection of C.S. Lewis's essays. And then as I got into English studies, I was reading some of his books on literature, which are really fantastic. And I think that is where C.S. Lewis is best, is... When he's writing about the stuff he really knew about and he, you know that he loves. And so, like you said, we mentioned it now, Preface on Paradise Lost. That was really influential for me. Mm-hmm. So I loved that book. His fiction and his prose, I wanted to be able to write like him, really admired him, especially with his, like when I read The Abolition of Man, stuff like that. I wanted to be able to write essays like he could. But his fiction, yeah, never quite did it for me. Though I liked it just fine. It wouldn't actually be until probably the last time we read that hideous strength that I actually really appreciated that hideous strength. It was my least favorite for a long time of mm. the three. So I think it's just because I never liked science fiction. Mm-hmm. I didn't like um, H.G. Wells. I never have liked H.G. Wells. Yeah, me neither. Or Jules Verne or any of those guys like that. That just wasn't what I was into. And so Paralandra I liked just fine. I mean, I like the Arthurian romance and all that weird stuff that goes along with that. Big fan of W.B. Yeats. But I always felt like somebody was doing it better. Yeah, I made a face like, sorry yeesh, for yeah. sorry for saying that, but that's kind of 
Kind of always how I felt about Lewis was that when it came to fiction, somebody was always doing it better. Same way with G.K. Chesterton. I always felt like when it came to fiction, somebody was doing it better, even though they were fun to read. But when it came to prose, they were both, or I keep saying prose, when it came to essays, mm. they were both fantastic. They couldn't be beat at that game. That's a good way, actually, to put, that helps me put my finger on how I think I felt about a lot of his fiction as a kid. It's like, yeah, Narnia is fine, I guess, but... Tolkien. I mean, he's already like done this and it's yeah, the like, Hobbit. It's why amazing. would I not read the Hobbit? And why would I not then read Lord of the Rings, which is like the best thing ever. And Narnia is only going to ever do one, one thousandth of what that does. Part of why I think that that's, you see that and you, you that's not the only place you see that thing happening. There's a difference between people who have something to say and people who have a story to tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These guys are, Lewis and Chesterton are guys who have things to say. That's right. And they're going to say them as essays, and then they're going to say them, they're going to use stories to say what they want to say. That hideous strength is nakedly the abolition of man. He actually says so explicitly. It was like Mm. he realized that the abolition of man was going to be hard for people and dense, and he wanted to dress it up in fiction and say it a different way so that it could be said. Yeah, that's right. And heard. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to people who just have something to say and are going to use fiction to do it, Lewis is one of the best at it. Yeah, I never resented him the way I was like, hey, Chesterton's fiction, Chesterton's... But... Liz's vision, always nice. You know, he dresses it up nicely that it does work as a story for the most part. Yeah, yeah but there's a, there's a there's a real difference, you know, and you can feel that difference is felt. If you, whether you see it or not, you feel the difference between somebody who has something to say and somebody who has a story to tell. That's right. Lewis is, is very economical in how he tells, says what he wants to say, even in his fiction, I think. But maybe if there's a bit of fiction in Lewis where he just has a story to tell... It might be till we have faces. It gets close, and then that ending. It's the but one then where he still has the thing to say. Yeah. He's still doing it all because he has, has a thing, thing to, say. to say. It's the most cohesive of his books, I think. It's the one that finds the like. closest synthesis between having a story to tell and a thing to say being the same thing. Yeah. You know? That hideous strength is to me just feels like a wonderful cartoonish yeah. smorgasbord of all kinds of things that he wanted to say and all kinds of little yeah. stories that he wanted to tell and it's just like a comic book and it's fun and it's wise in different places and it's prophetic in different and it's just like it's a thing it's not I don't even know that it holds together as much of a book but it's just like it's got a grab bag of all kinds of cool yeah. stuff that I like and that's helpful Till We Have Faces is a novel yeah. and yeah. pretty good one yeah but it still has that allegory in it so. yeah. and that is well, somebody I, mentioned it earlier allegory but mm-hmm. that it, Tolkien, it, yeah, and yeah, Tolkien hated that about, yeah, yeah, and so you see the difference. Like Lord of the Rings is not an allegory, as much as people want to make it an allegory. No, it, that's the that is the key difference between those two. Is Tolkien had a story to tell, yeah, and uh, and and he resented Lewis for yeah letting his thing he always whatever thing he wanted to say get in the way of the story yeah. he wanted to tell. And so people listening should just know that I'm always going to sympathize more with Tolkien than Lewis oh, yeah. here. And, the and people I, that, I would go so far as to say I've learned more from tol- spending time yeah. with Tolkien's characters, some of whom are very wise and godly in a weird way, you know, than I have from C.S. Lewis clunking me over the head with whatever point he wanted to make. Just spending an afternoon yeah. with Gandalf is worth more has been worth more to me than C.S. Lewis stringing together a bunch of beautiful platitudes and images. That might be a, that might be slightly hyperbole, but I don't think much. Yeah, I, I'm not going to go that far, but I, I, I think the way that I would put it, it for me 
is I'm glad Lewis wrote his fiction because I don't know that I would know who he was, that maybe we would know who he was if he hadn't written some children's hits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm really grateful for the very simple things that have stuck with me and been helpful to me and how I think about God, about praise, about, you know, just little things like that. The, the, the yeah, pretty much a, a lot of the things that, you know, John Piper latched onto, and, and, but some other bigger picture things, mm-hmm. especially the abolition of man. I guess we should talk about till we have faces, huh, guys? I guess so. Cue the music. Booking today was written and produced by me, Jake and Brandon, and me. We're all here. I don't feel like saying anything else. See you next week. What's that about? What? What's that about? <laughs> you, th- you think they deserve a good? Okay, you're right. They deserve a good outro. Hey everybody! You've heard it a billion times. <laughs> you know, it's me. It was Jake. It was Brandon. Warhornmedia.com, Patreon.com forward slash the booketing. Give that money. Give that money. Let's see, we're into January. Hopefully, everybody gave lots of uh, end of year donations to Warhorn Media. Is there anything that we need to be plugging, Jake? Anything we want to tell the fine folks about? Our pastors conference is coming up on us soon. Here, uh, February twenty first through twenty third, here in Bloomington, Indiana. So, if you're a pastor who, re- who listens to the booking, you should come. And why wouldn't you be? Uh, the the title of the conference is the Good Fight Conflict in Christian Ministry, featuring Tim Bailey, Toby Sumter, Max Carell, um, and so uh, registration is now live at warmedia.com. Hey, yeah, that's true. If everything has happened according to plan, we have about five thousand podcasts out now, and you should listen to all of them. That's right. Uh, oh, you even have time? <laughs> I don't know. I don't we just, know. Just uh, launched a new one, or re relaunched a. Uh, a new one called Practical Ecclesiology. That's right. That's right. Hosted by Michael Foster, a yes, PCA yes. minister down in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. It's all about ecclesiology done practical style. Good friend of all of ours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good guy. And I, uh, I make an appearance on the first episode. I think. Yeah, wow. yeah. We can always cut this part out if you don't. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jake. It's fantastic, and everyone should listen to it. Right. Thanks, Nathan. (laughs) You're welcome. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week to talk about our favorite novel of all time. Till we have faces. What were you going to say, Brennan? Peace. War and peace. (laughs) Yes.